Since the summer, uh, our league has been working with the government and health officials on a return to play plan. This has been our sole singular purpose. We were committed to the safe return of our players. We want our players on the ice. And in saying that, we recognize the importance of them getting back to play on their mental and physical health and their development as young people, as players. Well, Popey, here's the deal. It's the day that we knew was coming and everybody associated with the Ontario Hockey League knew was coming. But this might surprise you. So one more time for our fans of the Ontario Hockey League, I got a bit of a rant about what we just learned about the league this week. Why am I not shocked? Well, my soapbox goes with me everywhere I go. So even if we're not in the rink, my soapbox is right at my side for whenever I want to step onto it. Boy, am I ready to step onto it. Listen, everything that you're going to rant about, I'm sure I'm going to rant about because, oh, I don't know. That's maybe a lie, but I'm just infuriated by this entire process. And I don't know whether uh, I'm infuriated. My, my anger is because I'm not watching hockey. I don't know if it has something to do with a lost paycheck. I don't know whether it has, a, it has to do with over 365 days of this pandemic. Or, and I don't know whether it's directed towards the OHL or the provincial government or who to direct my anger towards. But I'm kind of upset about the whole process. We will now jump into and focus on what other, what other things we can do to support, as you say, the overage player. We also have those players that uh, uh, have not yet been drafted uh, as an 18-year-old. And what about that player that was drafted and hasn't got his contract yet? These are all things we have to look at and consider. Uh, as well, uh, we have uh, this 2004 birth year player who was drafted last year to come into our league. And, and literally some of our teams, majority of our teams have not had the opportunity. They couldn't meet with these young people. How do we get to know them? How do we get them to know us? How do we best move forward? This particular development of understanding we can't return to play this season just really fuels uh, the incredible amount of work we have to do to prepare short-term and long-term for the benefit of the player going forward. Yeah, I think, and I've given a lot of thought to the blame game as well. And I would suggest to anyone, quite frankly, take it for what it's worth. It's free advice. But I would suggest that if you want to direct your anger at somebody or something, direct your anger at the provincial government in Ontario. Because when you watch the Western Hockey League figure something out, when you watch the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League figure something out, really the crux of all of this for the Ontario Hockey League is the province in which it conducts its business. And to say that the Ontario government has been a disaster at handling this would be an understatement. It's as though Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his caucus have been wearing a goalie's trapper on either hand. We call some decisions ham-handed. These are trapper-handed decisions they've made from day one. And that's, I think if you're looking for blame, that's where you should direct your blame. If that were the case, they would have at least caught some of these problems that they Hey-o. ran into. But they haven't. 
when it, we talk about COVID and when we talk about the OHL season, because I said that anger and I, I talked to, to you about it on your show. Why come out and say that you have, you had a deal after the fact you had a deal when you can't now announce it. It's like, well, we did have one, but now they're blaming this whole thing on COVID again. And that's not the case. It should be noted that a couple of weeks ago, we in fact received permission from the chief medical officer and from the premier of the province that we could return and play. On the eve of that announcement, the COVID-19 conditions dramatically worsened. The provincial government, I don't think ever wanted the OHL to have a season. You think back at the very start of this, when was it Lisa McLeod that tweeted that the, in order to get back playing, they'll have to do so without body contact. That shocked everyone. And then Ford comes out and goes against her and says, we're working with the league to try to find a safe play uh, program. They never wanted this league to get back up and running. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they knew they would have had to pony up money, which they still did. But it's an absolute travesty that the provincial government of Ontario could not figure something out with the premier league in the CHL and the premier development league. Now we're have to talk about how this is going to affect not only the hockey career and the, the overall career of these young hockey players, but the mental health of it, the physical health of it, it is just, they took that ball and held it above their head and didn't just drop it. They chucked it. This was a complete and utter failure, a black eye on the league and a black eye on this provincial government. It is absolutely terrible. See, now I don't know, and and this connects into what I want to get on my soapbox about here for just a second, but I'm not sure I'd ever say that the provincial government didn't want the league to figure out a return to play. I just don't think it was anywhere near high enough on the priority list when it began trying to react to a pandemic that 13 months later, it is still reacting to instead of being proactive. Like it's just been beaten down by this. And every time it tries to get up off the canvas, bam, it gets hit again because it's made so many trapper-handed decisions all the way through. So I don't know if it's a question of want. I just don't think it was something even on the provincial government's radar. And that's maybe where I think we're on the same avenue, just maybe not using the same sure. verbiage because I, I don't think they wanted them to because they're just like, you guys are garbage, like forget about you. Not garbage. We're just forgetting about you. We have bigger things to worry about. And then by the time it came back around, it was a little too late. I think Lisa McLeod coming out and tweeting that at the very start says enough about this whole process than you need to know. Because without even talking with David Branch, without even listening to a plan, without talking, obviously about a plan with Doug Ford, she's going to tweet that they can't have body contact. Like, oh, hey, look at me. I'm doing my job. No, you're not. You're being a hindrance to this whole process is what you're doing. And this is why we sit here on April 21st with a canceled OHL season. Meanwhile, NCAA up and running, pro hockey over in Europe up and running, WHL, QMJHL all up and running. It's a joke. What do you think of her tweets, Minister McLeod's tweets, many months after the no body checking tweet about her being at her own kids, minor hockey games feels good to be back in a rink, watching the kids get their exercise and their mental health, uh, you know, attention paid to their mental health. <laughs> Meanwhile, fans of the Ontario hockey league, the players and the families are going, uh, hello, hello. What about us over here? Cause she was, right. I don't think it was deliberate shade. I think it was just <laughs> foolishness. Yeah, are you shocked by that? Like, I mean, no, not the it, way we've seen this. Go. She's completely mishandled this entire situation. So you you mentioned before, and and you make a good point about all of the other leagues, NCAA included, that have figured out 
something, managed the risks and, and kept players safe through their returns to play. But you mentioned earlier, black eye for the league. And this is what I want to get on my soapbox about a little bit here and, and call me biased. I've, I've been covering this league for a while. I'm a huge fan of this league, but I don't look at this as a black eye for the Ontario hockey league at all. Does it suck for the Ontario hockey league and the players that compete in it? Absolutely. But I don't, well, no, I do know where the narrative started. It started where all the bad narratives start, and that is on social media. But somebody's hot take was that this is the black eye for the Ontario Hockey League, and it makes the NCAA look that much more attractive to players weighing their options between the two leagues. And nothing, absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. Again, does this suck in the biggest way of suckage? Absolutely it does. The Memorial Cup being canceled for back-to-back years, it's horrible but a black eye or making the ncaa more attractive you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. if that's your hot take it's a stupid take is what it is this league is going to be back next season or later this year with a 2021 2022 campaign it's going to be if not right on 68 games very close to it and life is going to go on for the Ontario Hockey League. You already talked about it being the premier league within the three Canadian Hockey League entities, which it is. And nobody's looking more closely at the NCAA because they managed to play a couple of dozen games this year. Nobody thinks, oh, the NCAA is now the best development league for my son because they managed to play during COVID. Shut up. It's a stupid argument. Take it back. That's all. I'm with you. I don't think it is a black eye on this league. I think you're the only league that couldn't get up and running. But it's not the league's fault. I'm completely allowing the league to be off the hook on this. I really am. I'm not. It it takes two to party. And if they both hold some blame. How does the the league hold any blame in this? Honestly. Like, tell me how they screwed up. uh, What kind of, okay. Simple enough. Sure. And And this is maybe goes back to something else we talk about repeatedly on this podcast but what did we hear we interviewed david branch what did we hear about the criteria that the provincial government had laid out for them nothing what did we hear about oh that we've we've issued this plan did we hear in december or january we've issued a plan to the provincial government nope we've issued our third plan to the the provincial government we've issued our seventh plan to lisa mcleod and she keeps saying no there's got if, if if it's that type of negotiation which we i expect it was there has to be some form of transparency there. I'm holding both parties accountable because you didn't come to a deal while well, everyone else did. I know it, it's then if Lisa McLeod and the provincial government were that uh, uh, boneheaded enough, I guess, to have a plan that was unable to be met, then you got to come out and say this plan is unable to be met because but, now both people look bad. But what you're overlooking in that. Chris, is the political side to all of it, like the provincial government's failure in this notwithstanding. David Branch is nobody's fool. He's not Agreed. He's not going to poop in his own backyard. I, I guarantee you there were multiple plans presented to the provincial government for a return to play. I guarantee it. But it doesn't serve David Branch or the Ontario Hockey League in any way whatsoever to make public 
that they've been trying and trying and the province continues to kick them to the curb because that's not going to keep the relationship in good enough shape so that when the plan is ultimately arrived at, somebody is still listening on the other end. It's like unions. They never negotiate in public. You hear little snippets back and forth. But when it comes right down to the deals that are getting done, nobody has any idea what's going on at that table. So I think it would be in the OHL's worst interest. They'd be shooting themselves in the skate if they started blabbing about the seven plans they presented that never got off the ground. What would have happened? Then then you've got a provincial government that's struggling already, and they're going to they're gonna listen to you less. They're going to be less receptive to any idea you present to them, Se- not just now, but canceled. in the future. Season got canceled. It doesn't matter. I guess. Now we like know the, that, but no, they were no, still No trying. worse could have came up. I, I know they were. And trust me, it's like a 90% provincial government with me, 10% league. Fair but enough. when two people are at the table and you can't come to an agreement, you can't solely put the blame on one. It is a two-person negotiation. And I, I wish I knew more about the negotiation because I would love to put 100% blame on this provincial government. I got lots to say about them lately. <laughs> don't, don't get me started. But I just think when you both people come to the table and you can't get a deal done, then both hold some blame. I want to say in particular to the players and their families and their billets that we know that this has been such a difficult time for you. And thank you for your patience, your emails, your social posts, and your calls. We heard you. We understand. We're very fortunate to have such special young people as part of our league. It is a black eye on the league because Tom and Joe down having a coffee outside before this lockdown, we're like, why isn't the OHL playing? Why isn't the OHL playing? Not as many people are maybe as involved in knowing what's going on with the league as you and I, because it is our job. So they're just looking at it. The OHL is not back up and running. Oh, the OHL couldn't figure out. They don't know that Lisa McLeod is holding ransom because for whatever reason, they don't know these things. So, I do think it is a black eye in the league. Is it, a, is it going to make the NCAA a more viable option if, uh, for someone's child if they want them to play pro hockey? No, not even close. Like That argument is over. I said it on your show the other day. It may, the OHL may, uh, the NCAA may come up a couple notches next year if the OHL doesn't come out and say, we have a plan way early. you got five months before puck drop, almost to the day. September 21st. Isn't that when we normally drop the puck? Roughly? Third Friday of the month, usually. Okay. So you have five months. You got to come out early and say, here is our plan for September. Otherwise, a lot of parents with those kids are going to start wondering, maybe the OHL isn't the way. Maybe, you know, NCAA, they've had a plan last year to figure it out. Maybe we'll go down here. So as long as the OHL has their ducks in a row and a plan for September and doesn't wait till September 13th to say, here's our plan, then they'll be fine. But see, it's not up to the league to tell us what their plan is. It's up to no, the league the to tell the government what the plan is. And so the, I'm, I'm really confident, although I would have thought we'd be playing a 30 or 40 game schedule this year. It's still bizarre to me. Uh, before we get to our guest, who's got so many great stories, we really just need to get out of the way and let him start telling them. Yes, there's a story that involves Wayne Gretzky, who was not the most interesting person at a dinner in L.A., let that stew for just a minute. But before we get to the guest, Popper, uh, just real quick, one final thought from you on the schmoz that it's been here in the OHL. But what would you rather have? A league that never really got off the ground and you don't know why? Or a league like the dub that canceled its playoffs or the queue that started and stopped and started and stopped and who the hell knows what's going on over there? 
the other two leagues for sure. Really? Without a doubt. No okay. questions asked. Right. You got hockey under your belt. You played some games. Uh, a lot of these players, like we, I saw somebody tweet about it. I can't remember who it was and I apologize. They were talking about guys like Sean Dursey who come into the overage year or their third year in the third or fourth year in the league who are like a, you know, ranked about 50th, but they have such a great season. They get bumped up to like 20th and they end up getting drafted at a high level. People are losing out on that opportunity. People are losing a ton of opportunity for these young kids. And even if it was a 15 games, there's still a mini season. You could say, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it matters enough for this length of schedule that either league, other league played to, to really vault somebody's draft status in this crazy COVID year. Do you know what it does? Plus we've still been in. Do you know what it does though? On more on a different level, players wrote a letter to the league and to the provincial government. Players, parents wrote a letter to the league and the provincial government. If they would have had any kind of season, those people would have felt valued and heard, but they don't right now. And that is the black eye on the league. That's a great point. A great point. And I'll give you that one. Okay. We do have a tremendous guest on the podcast this week. Uh, We even get into the fights or lack thereof, which means he's probably never had a black eye in the Ontario Hockey League, but you're always good at introducing the guests, Popey. So let's hear it. Well, I grew up hating this guy. (laughs) That's the best way to start. I hate this guy. (laughs) No, now he's great. Um, There aren't too many people around the hockey world, Mike, that any player walks into a media room and sees that person and has authentic joy that they are now seeing this person. That is the biggest compliment I think you can give to any former player, and especially uh, a goaltender like this guy. Former Kitchener Ranger played in the most famous Memorial Cup of all time, went on to play professional hockey into the NHL and then overseas. Just an absolute beauty of a human being. Um, what's the point of us talking? Let's pass the torch to Mike Torquia. Well, Torch, I got to say, after uh, spending about five years with you broadcasting games for Rogers TV, I got to know firsthand just how many stories you have or stories connected to stories. So this one, we've been looking forward. We'd have it circled on the calendar to get you on this <laughs> podcast, buddy. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Uh, you too, Popper. I, I know I don't say that too often, but hey, uh, you know what? Uh, I'm excited to do this. Uh, I've been looking forward to it uh, ever since I got the call. So I know you and I discussed this before, so it's good to get on here. Are you happier now, Torch, not working with Farwell or coming to all the free <laughs> hockey games working with Farwell? You know what? Uh, it, it's, there's, it's six of one, half dozen another, eh? Right? It, yeah. it kind of balances itself out. Uh, I'll tell you, I got a guy at work who I work with now, and he says his favorite thing is listening to Farwell at night because it's a repeat of his afternoon show. And do you know why he loves listening to him? Because it puts him to sleep every night. <laughs> Don't ever change, George. <laughs> okay, let's go. I would back. just be laying in bed, my blood boiling. <laughs> you would. That's right. I, I said, who falls asleep to Farwell? <laughs> I said, there's a couple of games in Mississauga I almost did. But other than that, there was no one there. <laughs> well, and then there were those bus trips, Torchy, where we had to squeeze into those seats. And you could snore with the best of them, even on the bus sometimes. Oh, you know what? I have no trouble sleeping. COVID's been good for that, too. I've caught up on a lot of sleep during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> we, we asked Farwell a question on this to start things off. Who snores louder, me or Torch? Oh, boy. Oh, that's- well, 
I'll let me tell you a story. I can as, let him go. <laughs> as an answer to the question. Yes, both of you as roommates, if we're going to draw back the curtain on this, have been known to snore on occasion. But I remember the story from, I believe it was Andrew, your youngest, Torch, that asked you the question, what's going to happen when you share a hotel room with Farwell because of your snoring? How is he going to sleep? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. When we go on hockey tournaments now, we always look for the room, the hotel room that has two rooms with a separating door so he can sleep to get ready for games. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. I know there's so much ground to cover with you, Torch, but I wanted to kind of go back to the, the, the real roots of this for you as a hockey goaltender. Because if I'm not mistaken, your father was a pretty accomplished soccer player. So how does a kid from a kind of soccer family end up in hockey? You know what? My dad never put on a pair of skates in his life. Still to this day, he's never put on a pair of skates. Uh, he grew up uh, before he came over from Italy. He played second division pro over there and uh, then hurt his back before moving over here. So, you know what? I, I grew up and still love soccer to this day. Uh, I grew up watching soccer like every every weekend religiously. We'd watch all the Italian league games. The World Cups were always fun. Uh, you know, now I'm a big fan of the English pr Premiership. So, so you get a chance to uh, spread your horizons there. But uh, honestly, in, I grew up growing up in Toronto. I had uh, my one cousin Ralph, who lives in uh, Cambridge now. Uh, he he was playing hockey in Toronto. He played for uh, he was playing uh, minor midget growing up. And I was like, you know, I want to go watch some games. So we started going to watch some games. And my dad goes, you know, you should try it. So I said, sure. So I started playing hockey. Grew up in Toronto. Uh, uh, right downtown by uh, St. Mike's Arena in Toronto, like the old St. Mike's Arena, not where they played out of Mississauga, the old St. Mike's Arena, that little barn. That was the very first rink I skated on when I was uh, four years old. And uh, other than a little bit of a paint job, uh, not much has changed in that rink <laughs> even to this day when I go in there. But uh, what a great arena now. I love going in there and seeing the nostalgia of it all and seeing all the guys that came through there and you know, I started going to watch him play, and then my other cousin was playing in Bramley for the uh, Bramley Blues. So I really got into it watching junior. Like, I guess these guys were just finishing up their minor hockey. So they were a few years older than I, and uh, they would be finishing up the minor midget portion and then going into junior B. And, you know, it, it's funny because your, your paths kind of cross way after the fact, and uh, you end up doing the same things. But the only reason I got into it is because my uncle convinced my dad that I should try hockey. So I did. How'd you become a goalie? Uh, by accident. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> it was basically one kid didn't show up one game. We were playing uh, one of our select games. So we were playing house league for the Toronto Olympics. And, uh, you know, one kid doesn't show up one game. So they said, who wants to go in that? So, of course, I jump in there pretty good get shut out my first game so <laughs> you're the new goalie <laughs> so that was basically how it started and you know like it was such a great little organization down there it's just a little Toronto Olympics organization out of St. Mike's Arena and I'm sure if you talk to Kevin Weeks he grew up in that same organization so we were you know I, I've known uh, Kevin Weeks Kevin Weeks played with my brother my younger brother and uh, they grew up together in that organization but just an unbelievable family there too so you know, you get to meet so many people through hockey nowadays that the friendships last forever. 
Do you remember your, sorry, Mike, do you you remember your first, uh, I'm going to goalie geek out here for a bit. Um, Do you remember your first set of pads? Oh God, they were, uh, they were given to me by the organization. They were old Coopers and the gloves were absolutely horrendous. My chest protector was this piece of felt that you put on your arms and it had a separate chest piece that was basically probably worse than the baseball chest protectors the catchers wear nowadays. It was not even near as good as one of those. And it was basically a chest protector with these piece of felts over, pieces of felt over your arm. So uh, there wasn't a lot of protection. So thankfully the equipment got a little better as I got older because the bruises would have might, might've kept me from continuing to play goal. Were you a TPS Louisville guy in Kitchener though? Or were you, were you Vaughn no, the whole I time? Was a, I was a Brian's guy. Brian's. I, I wore Brian's all the time in Kitchener. So uh, I wore Brian's uh, every year. Well, they were Heaton's at the time. Or, no, they were Brian's. They were still Brian's going in. And that was an interesting story there. One of good friends of mine was working for Brian's from Toronto. And uh, we had taught hockey school together uh, coming up. And he was uh, he was kind of the Westwood rink rat, but he was also doing some work for Brian's. And he goes, you got to try a set of these. Put them on, love them. And then, uh, you know, from there, now I've worn almost everything under the sun. So it's been fun. I wish I had the pads they're wearing nowadays, I'll tell you that. A little lighter now than uh, than the deer haired stuff ones I got stuck wearing. I was going to say that before with the evolution of the equipment, and you talked about even by the end of your career how much better it was. But could you imagine having, you know, if you're coming into the game today, you're watching probably your son Nathan doing this very thing, but the equipment he's got compared to what you played with? Well, we we tested it out, so we put it on a scale for the. So we took his pads that he's wearing now, and I took one pad that I wore back when I was playing before they came out with the, uh, all the foam inserts and his, both his pads were lighter than the one pad I wore. So that tells you how much, uh, how much improvement. And, you know, I think uh, that may be the biggest factor, the improved equipment for goalies, the most, and obviously goalies are way better athletes now than they were back then. They're considered, you know, and I played with some freaks too along the way that were just unbelievable athletes. Uh, Olaf Kolzig might be one of the greatest guys and greatest athletes I played with as a goalie. But, uh, you know, the equipment right now enables you to be so much faster and so much more agile. Like, my, my, I watch Nathan, he gets new chest protector, new pads, throws it on once, and he's wearing it in a game. I got a new pair of pads and it took me six weeks of driving over it in the driveway to get them on so I could put them on and wear them in a game or soak them down or do anything you can to, to kind of break it down because they're so stiff. So, you know, the equipment nowadays has come so far and like that's a huge, huge thing for these goalies nowadays. By the third period, the pads would be so wet it added about an extra five pounds. It's oh wet. my God, that would, be, that would be the last thing. Like even – we can talk about the Memorial Cup later, but I remember playing in that. Uh, we played in the, I think it was the quarter semifinal game against Laval, and we went into overtime there. But I think I had 44, 46 shots or 42 shots in that game. My equipment was still wet the next day when I came in, and we had fans blowing on my pads. Like, and my pads, they were the last thing to want to dry. Mm-hmm. And it was just terrible. Like, it took so long to get your gear to dry back then that, uh, yeah, it became a factor in some of those overtime games. That Memorial Cup, that 1990 Memorial Cup, has already come up 
I don't know, several times with previous guests on this podcast. Obviously something we will talk about with you because many have said, and I, I subscribe to this, the best junior hockey championship this country has ever seen. But before that, I wanted to ask you about draft day, Torch. And I mean draft day to the Kitchener Rangers. Here's a kid from the Toronto area, comes up through the ranks as a goalie. You told the story about just the kid not showing up. You get a shutout your first game. Boom, you're a goaltender. What's it like getting the call from the Kitchener Rangers? Not a foreign land, obviously, just an hour away, but still you're leaving home to go to Kitchener to play hockey. No, you know what? It was uh, it was one of those things. Uh, it was back then we didn't have the online draft, obviously, because there was no internet back then. But uh, we, we were in the arena. I remember sitting in North York Centennial Arena, which has now been renamed uh, Herb Carnegie Arena in North York. Uh, so it's great arena for the uh, – Ring floors down there and there's stands all up down to one side. So we're all sitting up in the stands. And, uh, you know, I had a bunch of my teammates who I'd played uh, midget with that year. And uh, my best, one of my good friends, uh, Drake Berhowski, who we've talked to on occasion. But uh, we're all sitting in the stands waiting to get drafted. And uh, I think that year we had 15 guys drafted off our midget team that year. And it was, or it was just absolutely ridiculous. We had such a good team. But uh, we were sitting there, and you're just waiting for your name to be called. Thankfully, I didn't have to wait too long. Uh, it was funny because we had uh, off our team that won the All-Ontarios the year before in Bantam, we had uh, the top defenseman went first overall on that in that draft, which was Drake Berhoski. So the top forward in that draft was Graydon Reed, who I believe went third to Owen Sound, and the top goalie was myself, who went to Kitchener, and I was 20th overall. So... Uh, you know, thankfully I didn't have to wait long, but I, I kind of had an inkling I would be in Kitchener. We had, I had really good meetings with Kitchener prior to the draft. And um, the guy who was our, who, who really got me here to Kitchener was a guy by the name of Larry Stern, who uh, went on to work with uh, Octagon, or pardon me, with, uh, I can't remember which agency he went on to work with, but he was a guy who was uh, the head scout of the Kitchener Rangers. And he was supposed to be our assistant coach, but then he became the head scout of Kitchener. And uh, I, I got to know Larry when I was probably in Pee Wee. And he goes, one day you're going to play for my Rangers. And I was like, hey, you draft me, I'll be there. And uh, sure enough, uh, it, was, it was kind of a dream matchup. But, uh, you know, so much credit to Larry Stern for getting me here. But once I got here, it, it was all Joe McDonnell. He was just unbelievable for me. You mentioned Drake Barahowski. Young, obviously you said one of your – uh, good friend still. What's he like? <laughs> you know what? You know what? Drake and I, it, it's so funny because when we were kids, I remember when we were just starting out, we were we were kids playing minor minor hockey together in Toronto. And uh, we, we played together from, we started together in uh, in minor peewee with Toronto Marlies. We started together there and then we played minor peewee. And then in peewee, we had a guy by the name of uh, Eric Lindros joined our team. And uh, he joined our team that year, but Drake and I started together in minor hockey and uh, we really hit it off. Like Christmas Eve, our part of our Christmas Eve tradition was going to Drake's house for their family open house and all the friends and family of other, of all their friends were over there. And it started in minor Peewee. I, I can't remember when it stopped. Uh, geez, we were still doing it in junior. That was a Christmas Eve tradition head over to the bear house keys. And, uh, you know, we became very, very close, uh, to the point where we would spend summers together. Um, 
funny story with him is when we were before we went into junior the summer before we went into junior we uh we find ice wherever we could so we'd skate in toronto and you know get a phone call he goes torch i go what of course this is on the rotary phones because we didn't have cell phones back then <laughs> so i'm talking to my wall over there and uh, he goes uh come on over to my house tonight get your dad to drop you off bring your gear sure so sure enough my dad drops me off at his place like eight o'clock at night. His brother drives us over to Lakeshore Arena. I go, who are we skating with? He goes, he goes, one of my brother's friends. He plays for London. So sure enough, he goes, he's getting ready for NHL camp. So he needs a goalie to come take shots. So this was like our summer tradition. It was Brendan Shanahan, who was the guy from uh, the London Knights. And I started skating with uh, Brendan and Drake probably when we were 14, 15 years old. Brendan would just come out and he'd abuse us, but he was, he was such a, such a great guy. And such like, he was a guy that we would sit there and he, he would sit and tell us stories. And I heard so many London night stories about the Jim Sprouts and all these other guys who played in London. And uh, you know, it, it was a lot of fun to be around that. And that's kind of, that was kind of my tipping point when I knew I wanted to play in the OHL, just hearing some of that and uh, you know, thinking about uh, what it would be like to play, but uh, the ability to come to Kitchener really, uh, you know, even back then just kind of, it made it so worth it. And obviously I'm still here. Uh, <laughs> I still call this place home. So I think I've lived here longer than I've ever lived in Toronto. So. You mentioned Joe McDonnell's name and the two of you are forever linked from your time in Kitchener and, and well beyond. And as a former guest on this podcast, Joe told us a, a number of things. He told the story about being a former Ranger himself when he was stripped of the captaincy and it was given to Brian Bellows, went on to a championship, uh, didn't win the Memorial Cup, but won uh, a, a championship with the team. Uh, then got into coaching kind of by accident, didn't really think about being a coach, but somebody else thought, mentioned it to him. He, he joins an assistant, moves on to be a head coach. And then when he talked about you, when he was on this podcast, Mike, he said that if it was, you know, if it was something that was done back then, naming a goalie, a captain, he would have named you his captain. That's how much you meant to the team. What was that relationship like between the two of you? Uh, you know what? He was one of those coaches that, I, it took me a while. Like when you come in here, like you're so young, I was 16 years old, like moving away from home, uh, you know, come into a situation in Kitchener. Uh, my roommate uh, was Chris LaPuma my first year who I'd grown up playing minor hockey against with him with the Chicago young Americans and myself in Toronto. We, we, we kind of got to know each other, got to know the family and everything else. So him and I were a good fit together, living together, but when you come in here, you're 16 years old, you're moving away from home probably for the first time and you come into a situation and you got a whole bunch of older guys. And, you know, I played with a lot of crazies here my first year in Kitchener, let me tell you, but you move away and uh, you're so young and naive, you know, you, you just, you think the world's just going to crumble to your feet. Everything's just going to fall into place, but you really have to earn it and you have to fight for your spot. And, you know, my first year, I remember uh, my, my goalie partner had unbelievable year that year, Gus Morshauser. He was, uh, he might've been the goalie of the year, made the world junior team that year, uh, had an unbelievable year for us in Kitchener. But uh, we were sitting there and it was probably a month into the season. And I, I don't think I'd played my first game yet. He'd been on such a streak and we were, we were way, 
well overachieving that year. We weren't uh, we weren't supposed to be as good as we were, and you know we were in first place and everything else. And I, I didn't get much ice time. And I remember walking into Joe's office and just saying, you know, Joe, he go, I go, this is hard. He go, I go, I'm so used to playing all these games in Toronto. Growing up as a kid, I played up a year, and I, I was probably the go-to guy. I remember playing high school hockey. I was in grade nine and all my teammates were able to go to the bar and drink. And I, I was barely 14, 13, 14 years old. And, and uh, we go up to Offsa, but you know, like I was always used to being the go-to guy and you come here and reality kind of sets in Gus and no knock on Gus. Gus had an incredible year that year. Uh, but uh, for me, I got, I remember getting my first start and we, we went into Belleville is where I got my first OHL start and Joe goes, you know, you're going to get your start here, okay? So let's go let's go have a good game. Go enjoy yourself. Well, sure enough, we go into Belleville, and uh, I'm excited, and I'm pumped up, uh, getting ready, and I go out there for warm-ups, and we weren't two minutes into warm-ups. We got a brawl. We get into a brawl with the Belleville Bulls, So and they had a tough team, Brian Marchment, uh, Greg Bignall, uh, Scott Thornton. They had a whole bunch of big boys, and – I got two shots in warm-up. The brawl lasted the whole warm-up. I got two shots before my first game. And I've been playing in this Olympic-sized rink, and I'm just sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm so not ready for this. <laughs> so <laughs> we end up losing that night. But, uh, you know, it, it was one of those things that I remember my first game because I sat at center ice, and uh, the goalie at, for Belleville at the time was a guy by the name of Jeff Fife, who had a great junior career, had a really good run in Belleville. But – I sat there at center ice and he goes, first start, eh? And I go, yeah. He goes, good luck. <laughs> and he just kind of said, that was it. And we sat there and we talked at center ice where those brawls going on. Like Brian Marchman didn't even come on the ice for warm-up. He was on the bench in his flip-flops grabbing guys over the boards. And and needless to say, we had a tough team as well between, you know, the the Rick Lanes and Kirk Tomlinson, Robbie Sangster. We had Richard Borgo, Shane Stevenson whole bunch of guys that could really throw them and you know the game's changed so much nowadays but uh, it sure made my first start memorable but I, there weren't a lot of starts in my uh, first couple of months in the league you mentioned Rick Elaine we had a great story about Rick Elaine a few podcasts ago with uh, the Parson brothers and I you would have been I'm assuming you would have been a net for that game do you remember I don't know if you know the incident we're talking about where Rick basically came out of the penalty box after getting cross-checked in the face below the goal line and Steve wouldn't get out of the box. Then he went in there and beat the crap out of him. Were you there? Do you remember that? I was in net that game. So I, I can't remember if it was in Owen Sounder and Kitchener, uh, but Rick, he just sat there. He came out of the box and he stood in front of their door waiting for him to come out. And Steve refused to come out of the box. And we were sat there and just looked and we were laughing so hard. Now, Rick Lane was a tough man, but <laughs> here's my favorite. I'll give you my favorite Rick Lane story. We were playing uh, my second year, the year we went to the Memorial Cup. So we were playing London in, the, in Kitchener. And uh, sitting there, and right before I played, I have 10 starts in a row after Joe sat me out. So we, they went on a northern trip, Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury, and I get, sat in the, I get sat and I don't even go on the trip. So I stayed in Kitchener. So they lose both games up there. Then all of a sudden, I started 10 games in a row. We went on a little run that year. We're playing London, and our other goalie at the time quits on the day of the game. 
quit. So I've got no backup. We're playing London. Sure enough, first three shifts, Louis DeBrusque took three penalties hitting me in the game. <laughs> so third shift, the third one comes out and he's standing in front of my net and I'm ticked off, but Louis DeBrusque was a person you did not want to mess with. So he's standing in front of my crease and I hack him. I break my stick over his ankle and he turns around and he punches me. My helmet's in the corner. And like, so Rick Elaine jumps in. He looks like fights Louis, you know, and, and Louis was a year older than I was. So he would have been 18 at the time, 17, 18 and really good tilt between him and Rick and Rick gets up after the refs break it up and he looks at me, he goes, he goes, he goes, I'll protect you forever, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> don't ever do that again. I said, sorry, Rick. And I was actually living with Rick at that time. So him and I were roommates. We were living in the same billet house at the time, but yeah, it was, uh, that was one of my favorite Rick Lane stories. Uh, he's, he's probably the reason I play golf nowadays because he's the one who took me out golfing for the first time when I was about 17 years old and got me into golf. And uh, he, he's a guy to thank for spending all my money on golf. Now. <laughs> we, we, we know Torch that you're a goaltender that liked handling the puck. You would take your chances when you got them to shoot at an empty net at the other end. So you've got a couple of those notches on your belt, but based on these stories, what about a goalie fight? Uh, you know what? I, the only time I was ever involved in one was, uh, in pro, but it was, it was even, I don't even remember. I jumped in because one, one guy jumped on top of my defenseman. I jumped in and all of a sudden I'm getting pulled from behind and I can't remember who the goalie was in minors, but, uh, that was the only really first time I never really got involved with that. Uh, I was always very fortunate to have great defensemen that uh, jumped in for me. <laughs> so, but I wasn't one of those guys that, like that Louis DeBrusque incident was a rare incident. I wouldn't uh, like, I wasn't one of those guys that would sit there and hack guys or punch guys. And, you know, I played my game and uh, uh, worried about that, but I'll tell you another story later on uh, a Tyler Ertl story before that we'll, we'll go on there after, but. Yeah, that was my first year of junior, and I, I didn't get involved in that stuff. So even in that brawl with Belleville, my first game, uh, I just sat there with my gloves on going, this is nuts. What am I getting myself <laughs> into here? But uh, you know what? That first year, we'll go back to Joe McDonnell. That first year, I didn't. Like like I said, we got to uh, Christmas time, so this is December, and I think I had five starts under my belt. The Four or five starts, four or five games. Might not have even been starts. Uh, you know, we're probably 30 games in. I've played four, maybe five. And Gus Morshauser makes a world junior team. So I remember uh, right before, right when he left and we found out he was going to be staying and going to the world juniors. I believe they were up in Alaska that year. And he ended up playing with uh, Stefan Fizet, was the other goalie that year in Ala for the Canada and the world junior. But uh, Joe McDonnell called me into the office and he goes, he's made the team. This is going to be your chance to shine. And, uh, you know, let's do it. And then for every year that I played junior, right before Christmas, our last set of games was our Eastern trip. So we would go do, we went in Cornwall, Bel we went Belleville, we did separately, but we went Cornwall or Kingston, Cornwall, Ottawa, and then back home. So that was our, our Eastern swing at the time. So we were doing that. And, you know, I got a chance to play all three games in, in basically four days, but, uh, 
yeah, you know what, that was kind of where it took off for me. And believe it or not, I played five games and I ended up playing in 30 games that year. So when even when uh, Gus came back from World Juniors, I was on uh, such a streak that, uh, you know, he goes, you've earned it. And I got a chance to play and, you know, ended up playing, I think it was 27 or 30, 27 or 30 games my rookie year. But, um, you know, so you, you, like I said, he said, you know, you're going to have to earn it. And that was something I realized at a young age that nothing's going to be handed to you at this level. You're going to have to earn everything you get. And, you know, but Joe believed in me. And that summer he traded Gus Morshauser to, to uh, Hamilton, who was supposed to be hosting the Memorial Cup that year. And unfortunately he didn't. But, uh, you know, uh, like I said, you come into this league and you have to earn everything you get. We'll get to that in just a second, that Memorial Cup. But what's your Tyler Ertl story? Oh, good God. So... <laughs> <laughs> it would have been this was the same year this was memorial cup year second year so we're playing uh the global game of the week now north bay my rookie year north bay knocked us out in the first round they came in and uh, a guy by the name of john purvis absolutely obliterated the league yeah i think we played them and i think we lost in four or five and we were the first place team that first year we had all stupid blue and red haircuts and uh, Kirk Tomlinson, we'll blame him for that one, but I can get to him later. But you know what? They came in and absolutely killed us. But the next year we played North Bay again uh, in the playoffs. But right before the playoffs started, um, we were playing in Kitchener, and it was uh, back then it was the global game of the week. So Jack Miller, I don't know if you remember the ever-famous Jack Miller was doing that game. We had him on the pod. Did you? Oh, that voice, you could hear that voice from wherever and know exactly who it was on that. So Jack Miller's doing the global game of the week with Jim Taddy at the time. And uh, we're playing North Bay and we're up, I think we're up five, five, one or six, one with two minutes left in the game. And Bert Templeton calls a timeout. So sitting there going, it's, it's like six, one with, Two minutes left in the game. He's calling a timeout. So we come out of the timeout, and he put Tyler Ertl at center. And on his wings were the two Antosky brothers. And then he had uh, Van Kessel on defense, and Hatcher was the other defenseman. So Ertl was the only guy under 6'5 on, on the ice at the time. And sure enough, Ertl skates by me, and he goes, sorry, Torch. I go, I get it. He didn't even say anything. He goes, sorry, George. I said, Ertz, I get it. So when we win the faceoff, puck comes back to me. I cover it. Ertl comes in and spears me. So he comes in and spears me. And I tell you, there are four guys. They didn't even look at the puck. They just collapsed Ertl. And our guys are trying to get at Ertl. We had just traded Ertl in North Bay that summer uh, after his rookie year or two summers ago. So he was up in North Bay and his dad was our GM at the time. So Bob Ertle was still our GM in Kitchener. And he just, before the puck was even dropped, he came over and goes, sorry. And we have a big brawl on the ice and everything else. And I guess uh, Jack Miller is like, Ertle's just making a travesty of the game. This is like the global game of the week. He had to get a police escort out of the building just to get him onto the team bus and get him out of the arena there. And like, it was, 
it was nasty. That was that was our Memorial Cup year, the year we went to the Memorial Cup. So it was uh, it was quite funny. But Earl and I talk about it all the time, and uh, we still have a good laugh about it. Okay, so it's come up uh, a couple of times already, and and you just pointed out that Gus Morchauser, your former goaltending partner, gets traded to Hamilton because they're going to have the team they're going to host that Memorial Cup. At what point that season, Torch, did it start to feel like this was coming together? And of course, with what was happening in Hamilton, did it dawn on you guys that the door is going to be even that much wider open that year? Well, we knew, uh, well, I guess when we, when the league looked at Hamilton's record and it was one and 34 at the, or two and 34 and two at the time. And they just said, we can't put this team in the Memorial cup. And it was just after Christmas, we had heard that, uh, that this team wasn't going to be able to host the Memorial cup. So we knew that the, to get into the Memorial cup, you'd have to win your conference and be in the finals. But, uh, uh, we were good. We had a very, very good hockey club that year. And, uh, you know, uh, and, Lots of guys who played lots of roles, but, uh, you know, made some good trades that year. We pick up a guy like Jason York late in the year and uh, uh, plays a big factor on our power play. But uh, we, we knew we had a good team and uh, we basically knew if we could get through, uh, if we could get through Niagara Falls that year, it would be the big test. Uh, Niagara Falls had a great hockey club with uh, uh, Scott Thornton, Keith Primo, Brad May, a very good hockey club, but, you know, they, uh, they're probably, you know, their biggest weakness was probably behind the bench. They had a guy named Billy LaForge behind the bench who was a little cuckoo. So if you get under his skin, yeah, you could probably take the series against them. But uh, his team was very, very solid. And uh, my rookie year was uh, he was coached there as well. And, you know, they had a guy by the name of Brian Fogarty who set unbelievable records that year. And, you know, they actually had a system that was called Thunder 41. So by saying 41, that meant four guys on the rush, only one defenseman back. Let me tell you, Brian Fogarty didn't get 140 points playing defense that year. He was a forward <laughs> and, and he was damn good at it. And, uh, you know, like unbelievable. But uh, yeah, we knew if we could get through Niagara Falls that we would have an opportunity and we knew we had a good enough team to get there. So we were, we were pretty excited going into the playoffs. Take me into cops Coliseum as a young goaltender going there for the Memorial cup, that giant building. What was your first feeling like walking out to ice level, looking up and going, how big of a building is this? Well, you know what? I remember uh, it was one of those ones, like our first game was a round robin game. And you got to remember we went into the Memorial cup Obviously, we had lost in game seven of the finals to Oshawa uh, in the league. So we went in as the complete underdog. So we went in as uh, the fifth ranked team out of a 14 tournament. So it was, uh, we were, it was absolutely hilarious because the Canadian rankings used to come out back then and we were ranked fifth and there was only four teams in the tournament. So so our first game, we came in and... uh, we came into a game against uh, Kamloops at the time, who was coached by Ken Hitchcock at the time. And uh, they had incredible team like Scott Niedermeyer, Daryl Sador, Mike Needham. Uh, Dave Chizowski was on that team. Uh, Corey Hirsch was their goalie at the time. But it's funny because that was a year. It was kind of funny that everyone always wanted that experienced goalie. And I think two or three of the goalies that played the biggest factor in the Memorial Cup 
we were all 17 at the time. So Corey Hirsch was a starting goalie in Kamloops, myself and Kitchener, and Freddie came in in Oshawa and played a big role there. But but uh, so it was uh, – we came in against uh, Kamloops. And honestly, I'd never been in the building until, you know, we played the, the Hamilton Dukes there that year because they had recently moved from uh, Toronto because they were the Toronto Marlboros my first year and they moved to Hamilton. But I hadn't been in that building until we played our first game in there. And, we, I, and I think they're in the other division, but we only played them once that year. So we we're in there once. And, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure if I got the start in that game. So I, I can't even remember playing against them because they weren't very good. So that might've been my night off. Um, so we went in there and I hadn't played in there and the first game we we're going to play Kamloop. And my only recollection of that building was watching Mary Lemieux score that goal there in 87 to beat the Russians. And I was like, Oh my God, this is where, you know, I, I skate down to the ring. I skate down to that end where Mario scored. I go, that was pretty cool. Go take a look. And we, we got a chance to practice on there, but you know, it was, uh, it, it was pretty surreal. And you know, it, it's so funny because I believe those attendance records for that Memorial Cup stood for a long time, simply for the fact from Kitchener to Hamilton was about what, 45 minutes to the Cops Coliseum, 50 minutes. And from Oshawa to Hamilton, you head down the 403 and you could be there in an hour and 20 minutes. So, you know, we're talking like record crowds, like our first game there, uh, we played Kamloops. I think we had about 9,000 people in the stands and it was, this is like the first game of the tournament. I was like, okay, so, you know, it was good to get the juices flowing in that game. But once that, once that first game was done, then you knew you were in for the competition. We ended up beating Kamloops uh, in a real barn burn, a real goalie competition. I think it was 6-5 or 7-6. I can't remember what it was. But, uh, you know, we, our momentum really built from that game. We, we had a good game there against Kamloops. Uh, then we went in and beat Laval. Uh and then uh, we had the overtime thriller to see who was going to get the bye to the finals. So we played Oshawa, and I believe we lost 4-3 or 5-4 in overtime, uh, at double overtime or double overtime in that one as well. It was just overtime, actually. But uh, that was, you know, we got through the round robin there, and we could have easily been 3-0, and but we were 2-1. and So we played the semifinal game, played Laval, and that one had another good crowd, like, you know, the crowds just steadily rose. We started off at 9,000, but I think that was our smallest crowd. And the first game in there when we played uh, uh, Oshawa in the third game of the round robin, I believe like there was 13,000 at that game, 14,000. So it was, you know, it was kind of the eye opener. And like I was 17 years old. I didn't know any different. So whatever. It's like, let's go play. So it was just, it was one of those things, but yeah, that Memorial Cup really stands out for certain reasons. That, uh, that final against Oshawa. So you go seven games against them in the OHL final, they get the better of you, but that was a hammer and tong series between the Rangers and the generals. Then you talk about in the round Robin, they best you in overtime. What are your feelings going in? Like it's got to, I can't imagine the feeling going into a, a Memorial cup championship, but now against this team, that's got the better of you, but only barely in that round Robin, but you're going in against Oshawa for the national championship. What's going through your mind? Uh, well, I knew we could beat them. Like we'd shown we could beat them during the year and everything else, but we knew it was going to be tight. Like, I think, uh, 
I think we played that seven game final against Oshawa and only one game was decided by more than one goal in that whole series. Like it was a very tight series. So we knew we had an opportunity to beat them. And basically, you know, they were, they were a four line team. They could roll four lines at you and their fourth line was just as good as some of the guys on their first and second line. They were, they were very good. And we had a fourth line that probably didn't play a shift the whole tournament. And, and that was a big thing, but our first three lines were, were really, really, really good. Uh, you know, when your third line centerman scores 98 points in the year, you know, you got a good hockey club and our third line center that year was, I think, Jason Firth. And, you know, we had the uh, Mark Montaneri was our number one center uh, Joey St. Aubin, our number two center. And then we had Jason Firth as our third center. And Jason Firth was probably one of the most underrated hockey players I've ever played with. So skilled, so good, so talented. And, you know, he, he, his left winger was a guy by the name of Gilbert Dion, who that year was in his second year. He scored 48. He was our third line left winger, scored 48 goals that year. It was incredible. So we had depth on our first three lines and, uh, we knew we could play with them, but uh, that was a hell of an Oshawa hockey club over there. You know, like the, their depth was unreal up front. Uh, you know, Eric Lindros, Ian Fraser, and, you know, Dale Craigwell, I think, was their fourth line center that year, who went on to have a pretty good NHL career and good pro career. But that's how deep they were up front. So we knew we could, we could match them, but... Uh, uh, it was just one of those ones where you knew the team that got the right bouncer was going to win the game. And, uh, you know, I, I've run into 40,000 people that were at that game and everyone was at that game in Oshawa. But I'll tell you, it was um, it's one of those games that, you know, everyone always says, have you ever watched the game? I go, no, I remember the game very well. I've lived, I lived the game. So there's nothing in it that I have to watch to remember the game, but uh it was one of those games that, uh, you know, it's kind of etched right there in your memory that it just, it's one of those memories that doesn't go away. It's, it's there and it always will be because people never stop talking about it. It's still to this day, I still hear about it when, uh, whenever people think, oh, they have Memorial Cup in 1990. I was there sitting right behind you. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is one of those games that uh, was iconic because it was really the first game that, First time, uh, I think it was the first time that the Memorial Cup got put on primetime. Every game was on TV before it was just the final game. And that was a year, I think, uh, I think it was TSN that did it. I can't remember, but uh, Bob McKenzie did that. But uh, the commentator was Paul Romanuk at the time. And he's the one who was doing the play-by-play. And I remember listening to him about maybe about seven, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, he was on the fan and uh, I'm not even sure. He might have been on with your buddy, Greg Brady, there. And Greg Brady asked him about junior hockey. And he goes, what's, you know, what's the greatest game you've ever called? He goes, you've called lots of Spengler Cups and uh, tournaments and everything. And he goes, he goes, by far, the greatest game I've ever called was that 1990 Memorial Cup final between the Oshawa Generals and Kitchener. So, you know, like even that was 20 years after the fact, people were still talking about that game and, what an impact it had. And it was kind of the impact game that put junior hockey on the map because, and let's not kid ourselves. It wasn't because we were the Kitchener Rangers. It was probably because they had a guy named Lindros on the other team that really put it on the map. But 
you know, to be involved in that game and to be a part of that game was uh, pretty amazing. You talked about that opening game. I just want to point out it was 8-7 in overtime, Torch. Oh, I knew yeah. it was high scoring. I couldn't yeah. remember if it was 7-6 or even even with an eight even with an eight seven game in there, you still won the goaltender of the tournament. So I want to, want to go back to that actual over uh, double overtime against Oshawa. Yeah. What did you see or not see on that goal? I saw everything. I saw it pretty clearly. Uh, we had the puck in the corner. Uh, Chris Lapuma grabs the puck in the corner. And he goes to bank it off the glass. Uh, so he's going up the board. So he's going off the glass and out. Uh, puts it off the glass and they've got uh, six foot six defenseman standing at the blue line, knocks it down. Uh, Billy Armstrong knocks it down and just puts it down. And all he did was put it down or forward went out to him and he just turned around and just fired it towards the net. So I went down, we were, we were hemmed in our end. We were in our end for a little while there. So I was trying to get a whistle. So I'm going down to try to control the puck. It's coming right at me. It's going to hit me in the chest and, you know, one of my defensemen sticks his stick out, gets just enough of it to change total direction of it and goes up and deflects up and over my shoulder. And I think I got a piece of it on the way in, but just not enough to stop it. And, it, you know, it's probably one of the uh, softest shots that I had to face in that game. And it's, it's the one that beats you. Like I said, it was going to be a lucky bounce or a break. And, uh, you know, my defenseman is trying to knock this puck down and, Unfortunately, it ends up in the back of our net, and that's how we lose the Memorial Cup. So here's like, and and that just that just says it all. The way this all comes to an end, the the thrill of the tournament, how people look back on it as being as big as it really was. Some twenty years later, Torch, you and I, and I've I just I can't shake this, but you and I are working together, and we're at a game in North Bay, and Corey Banica is there as a scout. Now, I didn't know Corey up until this point. You run into him. You guys hug like your old friends, long lost brothers. And you make the introduction. And I'm like, okay, hang on a second. This is Corey Banica who played for the Oshawa Generals team that beat your Kitchener Rangers in that Memorial Cup. And you're like long lost friends. So clearly in the years after, like the players that were involved in that, you kind of, that, that agony of defeat that we talk about so much in sports, you you get over it after a while. And, and those of you that participated in that game, in that tournament, remain friends later on. You know what, Mike? That year, we didn't we played Oshawa in the regular season. And I think both our games were done with them before we even got to Christmas. So we didn't see them again until the finals. But in a, basically between the finals and the Memorial Cup, I'd say in a three-week span, we played each other nine times in a three-week span or four-week span probably. And uh, there's such a mutual respect between the players on those two teams because it was such a hard-fought series. And, you know, it was one of those series where you look back, the hockey was so good, but there wasn't anything stupid that happened in that series. It was a very, like, I'm not saying it was very, like, nobody wanted to hit each other. It was a very tough series, but – there was nothing stupid that happened. There was no dirty hits, no anything like that going out of the way. Even with a guy like Lindros, you know, a lot of teams tried to intimidate Eric and do a lot of things to Eric. Um, tough to intimidate that boy. He was 6'5 when he was 13 years old and uh, probably a man amongst boys when he was growing up. But, you know, uh, 
a great guy. Eric and I went back to, we started playing hockey together in Pee Wee. So uh, I'd known Eric for years. And, uh, you know, and, and as far as some of the other guys on that team, uh, those are guys, a lot of the guys on that team are guys I kind of grew up playing against each other. And a lot of the guys on our team knew the guys on their team. So there's always that connection. Hockey, the hockey world's kind of funny in that way. But they had guys like uh, Rob Pearson, Jared Scaldi, uh, Dale Craigwell, all played. In, they're all local guys who played in the Oshawa minor. John Paul Davis was another guy, JP Davis, uh, who's now in uh, Sarnia. So I run into him every once in a while still to this day. But uh, uh, we, we grew up playing against each other. So we've known each other. I've known these guys. We, we beat Oshawa in the uh, semifinals of the All Ontarios in Bantam with all these guys on this team. So, you know, it's not like we hadn't known each other, but it was always one of those things where it was that very, it was a very mutual respect between the teams. So uh, still to this day, I ended up playing pro hockey with a lot of the guys off that team. I played with Dale Craigwell, played Joe Basillo over in Europe. And, you know, I played with Rob Pearson, Rob Pearson. And I became very, very good friends uh, still to this day. Uh, his wife and, and uh, my wife, Laura, they used to hang out together all the time. We we're in Portland together with Washington's farm team. So we spent a lot of time together and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that mutual respect. So a guy like Corey Banica, Corey Banica was a hard nosed player on that team, but you know, he was a fourth liner probably <clears throat> played slightly more than our fourth line did in the Memorial cup. But uh, you know, he, he, he was one of those guys that every time he was on the ice, he knew he was there because just never stopped working. And uh, you know, you have respect for guys like that because uh, they make a lot out of what they have. And a lot of them weren't the most skilled guys, but the heart was in the right place. And, and, and you have to respect that in this game. I remember seeing Jared Scaldi come up to the media room the one time and he walks in and you guys both get this big smile on your face. And there's a big hug and you know, he's torch. I'm looking over at you going, how are you talking to this guy right now? I'd be losing it. Um, after, after that Memorial cup Kitchener kind of did a, a rebuild before a rebuild, if you will. Um, did you ever ask or think about leaving town to go chase it again? Well, I'm sure Joe McDonnell might, I'm not sure if he would have told you the story, but. Uh, There's a reason why I asked this question. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there was one opportunity to leave town. And uh, basically Joe asked me if I wanted to go. And, you know, I was in my fourth year. I was about to sign my first pro contract. So, for me to leave after four years of bleeding blue, red, and white, it wasn't worth it for me to chase it one more time. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, and it's funny because it would have been with a lot of guys I knew and it would have been up in North Bay. So my best friend was playing in North Bay was Drake Berhowski at the time. He was in North Bay at the time, but uh, you know, I wanted, this was, it would have been the trade deadline my last year and uh, Joe McDonnell gave me the option and he goes, uh, I can make, I can move you or you can finish off here. And uh, I said, no, Joe, I want to finish my four years as a Kitchener Ranger and I wanted to stay here. And uh, we actually ended up going on a pretty good run that last year. We had an unbelievable series uh, uh, against the Sioux uh, in the conference semifinals. They ended up going in and they had, they were at the Memorial Cup the year before and uh, we had 
a seven game series. Uh, some guy's been on Twitter uh, tweeting about it, Mike, and uh, you and I, he keeps tagging you and I in the post, but uh, you know, Chris. we, yeah, Chris up in the, yeah. and uh, we had unbelievable series up there. So, you know, there was the option for me to go to North Bay that year. And uh, I refused the trade joke. And, and I, it's not like I had a no trade clause or anything like that. Those didn't exist back then. But Joe said Joe gave me the option, and uh, that was part of the respect that uh, Joe and I had between one another. And he, he goes, you know, you've been here four years, and I'm going to give you the option. If you want to go, I'll let you go and chase chase a Memorial Cup in, up in North Bay, or you can stay here. And I said, no, I want to stay and finish my four years in Kitchener. You mentioned Ken Hitchcock's name before, coaching Kamloops in that Memorial Cup. Uh, you played for him, if I'm not mistaken, in Kalamazoo as you started out in the pro. Oh, God, yeah. Ken Hitchcock, there was a meeting to tell you when the next meeting was going to be. It's kind of like a Doug Ford <laughs> announcement. You know, <laughs> it's not much different than a Doug Ford announcement. You didn't really know what it was about. But uh, Ken Hitchcock, probably one of the most brilliant hockey minds I've ever played for, just so prepared and did his homework so much. But you know, he was one of those guys, very abrasive, <laughs> just uh, didn't see eye to eye with everyone. So Hitch really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But the, our saving grace when I played for him in Kalamazoo was uh, our assistant coach. So he's a guy we probably saw. He was a head coach in Winnipeg, Claude Noel. Oh, my God. This guy, like Hitch would come in and do a meeting and just everyone be sitting there going, oh, my God, Hitch, leave us alone. And then Claude would come in, dance, and go, "Hey, boys, how's it going?" And he's just—he was the comedy act in between, and but a, also a great hockey mind. And Claude was a guy who, uh, I believe, was with Bert Templeton up in North Bay when he first started, and he started up in North Bay. But you know, you got to have that balance there, and I think that's why there's the chemistry between a guy like Pete Dubornski spot uh, that works so well because you know they have this this chemistry where. They feed off one another. This guy will go in and play the heavy, and you know Steve Spot will come in afterwards and kind of rub you the right way and make sh- make sure everything's all right. And and coaches develop that chemistry, so that's why you see a lot of these coaches, whether it's pro hockey or junior hockey, stay together and they they work well together. And there's a reason they have success. Fast forward a couple of years after Kalamazoo. And you end up getting a shot in Dallas. You walk into that room. There's the Hatcher brothers. There's Peter Zezel. And there's a guy by the name of Mike Medano. What's going through a young Mike Torquia's mind when he walks in and sees a guy by the last name Medano? You know what? I'll, I'll go before that. I'll go before I played my first NHL game. I went into my first training camp. So I got drafted. The year I got drafted, going to training camp. And I know I've got another year junior left. So we go into training camp and, uh, you know, in training camp back then, it wasn't go out there practice. So, if you were, so you either practice and then play a scrimmage, and then the other team you played against would practice after the scrimmage. So there was two teams. So my first year, I was on Team Hertzberg. So Craig Hertzberg was my captain. Uh, the other team was Team Ramage, which was Rob Ramage was the other captain on the other side. So I was on Team Hertzberg. I was 18 years old, and you know. I think I was paired up with, uh, I think it was, was John, it was John Casey. I was paired up with my first year. So we're sharing the net and uh, he plays, of course, it's the first, it's the first inter squad or scrimmage we have. And 
he plays the first half because he's John Casey. He goes, I'm playing the first half. So, okay, you tell me what you want me to do. So I'm sitting on the bench, and sure enough, he, halfway through he goes, we switch up. So I go in, and wouldn't you know it, the very first shot I face, Mike Medano on a semi-breakaway. And he got to the top of the circle, and he just snapped the shot. And I tell you, I don't think I moved till the puck was already on its way back out of the net. His release was absolutely ridiculous. Probably one of the best shots I faced. And now I got a chance to play against Al McKinnis and Brett Hall and all these guys. But his release was, you know, and we always talk about Mark Messier, his ability to shoot and do that. You know, I, I would put Mike Medano right up there with a Mark Messier type release and just unbelievable. And probably by far the one of the most, no, I will say he is the most skilled guy I've ever played with in my life. Just unbelievable how how talented he was and how he could skate. He, and everything was effortless with him. So he was scary. And that was my first first shot I faced was a shot off Mike Medano's stick, and I didn't even move. So my goals against was about 60 before I could even start. <laughs> okay, from that first training camp, and Mike Medano scoring on you in a scrimmage. Fast forward a few years to your first pro game, and I'm pretty sure it was on the road in the old Chicago arena. Amante, Ronick, you're against Belfour, and you're playing your first National Hockey League game. Well, to backtrack on that a bit, we were, it was, uh, we were in uh, Kalamazoo like a couple, about a week before, and we were playing the Chicago Wolves. Now, and this is part of the story because the guy who I was there with was uh, Gord Donnelly had got sent down to us for a conditioning assignment. So we went into Chicago and Chicago Wolves had a great hockey club in the IHL. And we go in and we beat Chicago Wolves in overtime and Gord Donnelly scores the winning goal. Gord Donnelly shouldn't have even been on the ice in overtime, but he scores the winning goal. And sure enough, so he scores the winning goal. We win Chicago 2-1. So two days later, Darcy Wakalak got hurt in a game in Detroit. So I get called up, but uh, Andy Moog's playing and he's playing well. And then he gets hurt. So we're sitting there and both of us are in, we have two goalies called up. So from our Kalamazoo team, we're both playing in Dallas at the time. So Andy Moog had tweaked his groin. Darcy Wakalak had a broken hand. So it was myself and Manny Fernandez. So basically we played Saturday in Detroit and Sunday afternoon we were in Chicago. So kind of, it was kind of a coin flip, but he started Manny Saturday in Detroit and Detroit had a pretty good team at the time too. And we went into Detroit and we lost five, four, five, four, four, three, something like that. But it was a good game. So I'm sitting on the bench and I'm sitting there going, Holy shit. So we were sitting there and didn't realize it. But the next night, it's an afternoon game, and we're playing in Chicago on the afternoon. So we left Detroit, jumped on the puddle jumper, went over to uh, over to Chicago, check into the hotel. So we're sitting there at breakfast the next day, and, like, we weren't sure if Andy Moog was going to be back in the lineup. Just had to tweak his drawing. So we weren't sure who was going to be starting. So, so we're sitting there at breakfast, and uh, – so it was probably it's two o'clock in the afternoon game. It was one of the first games Fox Network ever did, uh, and they had the stupid blue puck in that game. Um, but uh, one of the and we're sitting there at breakfast, and 
having breakfast and uh, Bob Ganey's going over, you know, we had a good game yesterday. We got to do this better. You know, we're coming into Chicago. We got a great club. We got to make sure we're ready for this. He goes, okay, uh, Gord, Donnelly, you're in the lineup tonight. Uh, I can't remember who he sat out. And he goes, and Torch, you'll start. And that was it. He walked out of the room and I was like looking around going, me? I was like, okay. So it was like, this is like 10.30 and the game's at 2 in the afternoon. So sure enough, didn't even have time to get nervous, which was probably the best thing because everything happened so fast. So went in, packed my bag, uh, packed my suitcase, and I jumped in a cab and I wanted to go to the rink early. So I got to the rink beforehand. I didn't take the team bus. I just got to there early because I was just like, oh, my God, I got to get focused here. So thankfully they had moved they had just moving out of, moved out of the uh, old Chicago stadium and they're in the new United center, which it is now, but uh, get there. And I'm just like, Holy crap. I'm ready. I'm not really ready for this, but sure enough, you go out there and you know, it's one of those games. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was, uh, it was one of those games that was kind of surreal. So you, you kind of don't even know it until the game's over that you're kind of involved in it. So it was, uh, it was unbelievable because I'm just looking down at their lineup and, I think they started at Roenick, Amante, Murphy with Chelios. And I can't remember who – oh, it was uh, Gary Suter was the other defenseman there and Belfort and that. And I'm just like, that's a pretty good lineup if you ask me. So I better be careful. And, uh, so, but we went in and we played in Chicago that night. So we had, I had just played in Chicago probably on the Wednesday, and this was a Sunday. So I played there on the Wednesday with Kalamazoo in the uh, other arena in Chicago and then go in and we're playing, now I'm playing United center. So Gord Donnelly goes, he goes, we got this. He goes, we own this town. And I'm just like, we own this town. So we beat the Chicago wolves on Wednesday. We're not, this is the Chicago Blackhawks. This is a different lineup. Well, sure enough, we had one Wednesday in Chicago, two, one against the Wolves. Well, sure enough, we win Sunday two one against the Blackhawks and Cordonley scores the winning goal in that game as well. And we were just like, he goes, I told you we own this town. And then we got on a flight to Vancouver after that and left for Vancouver after the game. But uh, yeah, it, it was one of those experiences where, you know, I remember it right from the morning because, you know, you, you weren't sure. We weren't even sure if Andy Moog was going to get back in the lineup and play that night. And he ended up playing two or three days later in uh, Vancouver, but we weren't even sure. Like they thought he might, Dressing that game Saturday, Sunday in Chicago, but that's uh, that's how I got my first start. There's not too many people that can say that they have a winning record in the National Hockey League. Do you uh, still do you still have that first uh, puck? The first I do. I puck? actually have the puck. I have the game sheet. Uh, Bob Ganey uh, gave me the game sheet from that game, the puck, and uh, everything else. I actually have my stick from that game. And it's always great because uh, there's a local tie in there because the referee in that game was uh, Lance Roberts. So, Come on. Yeah, so Lance was a referee in my first NHL game. And we still joke about it to this day, but he's on the ice. He goes, you got this, Torch. Have fun with it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I got this, but thanks, Lance. <laughs> Sorry, just real – I want to follow that up just real quick because that brought me to a great point. Like, anyone who has met you knows that you are exactly what you are right now. This happy-go-lucky guy, loves to talk, loves to – <clears throat> excuse me, hasn't been – 
many people walk into the media room and kitchen and they haven't been excited to see you if they know you. Were you that way on the ice? Like, or were you like when Lance walks by and goes, you got a torch? You're like, yeah, thanks, Lance. And then you go carry on. Oh, I'm just going to stop Tony Monte. Nope. I was not like that at all. I was actually, I was super intense, uh, almost to a point where I had to teach myself not to be so intense. Uh, uh, you know, I was what it was like uh, when the game time came, I was, I was ready to play. I was ready to go to battle and I wanted to win. Uh, for me, winning was everything. I wanted to win every game I played and it didn't matter who I was playing against. I could have been playing against my mother. I wanted to win. It, it, it wouldn't have made a difference to me. But uh, um, yeah, my persona wasn't the same on the ice as it is off the ice. Off the ice, I've gotten to know a lot of people and uh, you know I've been friendly with a lot of people, but on the ice, didn't matter if you were standing in my crease you know, you're going to get a shove and get out of my way because I want to see the puck. I want to stop the puck. And that was just my competitive nature. What ultimately was it, Torch, that led to the decision that uh, you're done toiling in North America and the National Hockey League and you made that decision, which I know you loved and you can share the stories of your European tour, quite frankly. But but what was the what was the catalyst for that to say, you know what, no more pursuing the National Hockey League. I'm going over to Europe to play hockey. Uh, you know what? It was it was one year that uh, I think I spent the season getting traded. I think I, you can check my hockey DB, but it was an interesting year. I know Pope has uh, laughed about it a few times on uh, my suitcase year, and that was a year I blew up my knee when I was in Washington and uh, got traded. I was in Portland, Maine. I started in Washington, went to Portland, blew up my knee, went to Hampton Roads. Uh, on a conditioning assignment to play for Brophy after my knee recovered. So I was out for about uh, 10 or 12 weeks. So I went down on a conditioning assignment. Well, then uh, injuries happened in Dallas. So Dallas needed uh, goalies. So they signed a guy. Uh, they, so they had called up their goalies from uh, Kalamazoo at the time, which was Marty Turco, I believe. So they called him up. So then Kalamazoo was short a goalie and they had no one in the, uh, in the system. So I ended up going to Kalamazoo and I played one game in Kalamazoo and then another goalie got hurt in Dallas. So then they signed Alan Bester. So part of the deal, they said, this is how it all happened. Believe it or not, they signed Alan Bester. So Alan Bester went to Dallas and now Orlando solar bears with were the were goalie. So I went from Kalamazoo to Orlando and I was like, what the heck is going on? And this was all within, like, I went down on a two-week conditioning assignment, and I'd been in five, played for five different teams, or four different teams in, like, three weeks. I was like, this is ridiculous. So we ended up staying in, uh, and I just got married that summer. So we ended up staying in uh, Orlando and uh, loved it there. Got traded at the deadline. Then I got traded deadline to Anaheim. And I think I finished off the year in Baltimore after Orlando. So, yeah, I did a world tour that year. And, uh, you know, it was quite interesting, but I met a ton of people and a lot of guys who are coaches in the NHL now, coaches at CIS, all played on that team in Orlando. And, you know, it, it was kind of a world tour that year. And that was kind of the breaking point. I played one more year in the old IHL. The next year I played in Fort Wayne. I was I had one more year left in my contract with – for, with uh, Anaheim played there and then I played one more year in Milwaukee after that and that was it I was like you know what this is not fun for me anymore over here uh, got an opportunity to go to Europe 
And uh, basically it was the thought of playing a shorter season and making more money than I made here was uh, pretty enticing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, when you're over here and like our, our seasons in the old IHL were grueling. Like we, we were 84 game season and, you know, like my last one, my second last year in Fort Wayne, 84 game season. I played with Tim Shovel Day that year. Tim Shovel Day was my goalie partner and he quit in December. He goes, I've had enough of this game. So he quit in December or January. That year in 80, 84 game season, I started 59 games that year in pro. So it, it took its toll. Like it takes its toll on your body and, you know, you're practicing and you practice every day. And our coach that year was a real fitness nut was uh, Dave Farish, who was awesome. Absolutely. One of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but you know, we knew we were in for it when we all had to buy heart rate monitors so we could skate and practice and measure our heart rate to make sure we were working hard enough. So you always knew it was time to the heart rate monitors would come out of the dressing room. You take off your upper body stuff as a goalie, put your heart rate monitor on. And we knew we were skating. And I was like, damn, I hate this, but uh, awesome guy. Um, we would, um, so Played for Dave Farish in, in uh, Fort Wayne, and you know the gruel, the the grind of going through that 84 game schedule was was tough, and and you practice every day, and that was two a year after I blew up my knee in uh, in Portland. So I was like, you know, I'm looking for a change and just to kind of slow things down. So I went over to Europe, and you know, I got a call, and they said, well you're, you're going to go over, and I went over. First, my first stop was over in Italy, and it was just like. You know, it's a 40, 45 to 50 game season, then playoffs, and then you're done. So you start early, you're done early. You know, sometimes we practice, sometimes we don't. Depends when the rest of the team works or not. It was really laid back, but uh, it was real eye-opening over there as well. <laughs> but uh, So it was more the thought of going over there, you know, make decent money, uh, more than we were making in the minors for sure, but only playing half the games we had to play over in North America. You mentioned that year you injured your knee, the suitcase year. I just want to point out only a losing record on one of those teams. So just pointing out some stats. Yeah. Remember that year? Yeah, no, I, I had a blast that year. Like I, I, I only played one game in Kalamazoo. I, we went in and it's funny because I flew into Kalamazoo and they had no goalie for the game. So our trainer there was a guy by the name of uh, Corky Osborne who was Mary Lemieux's trainer when Mario had the, went through the Hodgkin's lymphoma in uh, Pittsburgh, but he was my trainer there for the two previous years. And Cork was probably the nicest guy in, in the world and great trainer. But I showed up to the game and the only thing that didn't make it was my new knee brace. So I show up to play and my knee brace that I'm supposed to wear doesn't show up with me. So I've only skated like three times with a, with my knee brace on. So I'm going into this like totally screwed. And he goes, don't worry, I'll tape you up. So he had me all taped up and, uh, and I played one there. Next thing I know I'm in Orlando, had a great time over there. Kurt Fraser was a coach in Orlando at the time. And they had a really good hockey club there. And, uh, you know, guys like Todd Richards on that team, Craig Duncanson, who's coaching up at Laurentian and, uh, had a great time there and Craig Fisher, who's coaching at UQRT. Uh, but, 
you know, you go over there and you, you just make the best of the situation. You, you enjoy what it is and, uh, you know, you have fun with it. And that, that year, as much as it was crappy to be moved that many times, I met so many people that I'd never known before. And, and, and that's part of the game. That's the fun part of the game that people don't even think about. But it's not it's not always about the hockey. It's about the people you meet and how they impact your lives or how they become part of your life. You mentioned a name in that suitcase here as a coach, Brophy, John Brophy, well known. Uh, I can see the look on your face already. It's, it's actually one of my one of my favorite stories. We're playing, and uh, so I'm down there in Hampton Roads. So he's coaching in Hampton Roads. So I get down there for two week conditioning assignment. Now there's so many aspects of this story that aren't that aren't funny, but they are funny. Uh, the guy who was the goalie, there was, they had two goalies in Hampton Roads at the time. So they had a guy by the name of Mark Bernard, who's now the assistant GM in Chicago. So Barney was the assistant GM in Chicago at the time, or he was the, one of the goalies at the time. And the other guy was named by uh, another guy by the name of Todd Hunter, who was actually in my wedding party when I got married that summer. So he was a really good friend of mine from, from here, from Kitchen. So he's a Waterloo guy. Well, sure enough, they had to make roster room. So Todd Hunter gets released, and that was his last game of pro hockey. So he comes back. But anyhow, we'll go off on that later. But he, he comes home. So John Brophy's a the coach there. And John Brophy was married to a female golfer. And, and he was one of those guys that really wore the game on his sleeve and just loved the game but so intense, like always. His face was always red because he was always yelling at someone, right? So he was probably the most intense guy out there. And we were in practice one day and uh, just a simple breakout drill. Brophy was old school. So if the defenseman couldn't handle the puck, you had to make sure the puck got out of the zone. So he dumps the puck in, come in, break out with pressure, unsuccessful dump it in again, do it again, same guy. Well, the poor defenseman who was actually a Toronto guy, so I'd known him from Toronto, was a guy by the name of Richie Bernia. And he is up and down. He is crawling up and down Richie's back. He is yelling at him. You know, if you can't do it, I try not to swear when I do Brophy in prison. <laughs> he goes, if you can't freaking do it, he goes, get off the ice. He goes, you get that puck. I want to make sure it gets out of the zone. It's got to be hard around the glass. So I don't know if you remember Brof well, but Brof had this muffet of white hair and it stood out like a sore thumb. So sure enough, he dumps the puck in. Richie comes around, pressure coming on. Brophy goes over to the sideboards after he dumps it in. Richie goes around the net. So instead of even making a play, he takes the puck and he wires it right around the glass and it hits Brophy right in the back of the head. So he's got this mop of white hair and all of a sudden it's going red and he is bleeding all over the ice. And, you know, in typical bro fashion, he looks at him and goes, that's effing better. And he skates off the ice. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> as long as the puck got out, he didn't care. That was a uh, bro. But bro, you know, one of those guys that was so intense, but he had uh, a player's, assistant coach down there with the time was Al McIsaac and uh, you know, Al was great, but 
you know, Brof was that guy who just so intense, but, you know, he pulled you in. We, we were, uh, and I think it Brof had quit drinking by that time, but we were, uh, we were at a game and we went out after the game for a bite to eat. And he calls me over and I sat down, just sat down, just had a coffee. And he goes, come here. And grumpy. And it's like, but then once you start talking to him and the stories start flowing at him, you know, I, I grew up in Toronto. So, you know, you grew up in Toronto and I remember the days where John Brophy was coaching Toronto Maple Leafs. So now I was playing for John Brophy and, you know, we, we just went on and talked about those stories. The funny story is when he was coaching the Maple Leafs, I was playing for the Marlboros, Toronto Marlboros. And we used to practice at 6.30, 7.30 in the morning on Saturday morning at Maple Leaf Gardens. So right after our practices, the Leafs would come on the ice for their pregame skate. So he was coached there at the time. So we talked about that for a bit. But uh, those were the good times at Maple Leaf Gardens because we weren't allowed to hit the boards or hit the glass with the pucks at that early in the morning because Mr. Ballard was sleeping. So he was sleeping at the rink. So you had to keep the noise down. So it was uh, always interesting there, but uh, a lot of fun. There's plenty of stories surrounding Harold Ballard, that's for sure. Um, oh. I want to go back to when you were – or do you have a Harold Ballard story you want to no, tell? No, oh, no, okay. There was no shortage of stories in Toronto. He wasn't a very well-liked man. Yeah, no. Um, but when you did go overseas, it's, it obviously wasn't the KHL or anything like that, but do you have any, like, duffel bag full of money stories or, like, missed plane flights or anything like that? Uh, there was a few of those, but it wasn't duffel bags. We didn't get that <laughs> money. <laughs> but there's always, like, the, the ways around it. Like, these teams – they entice you with this, like, we'll pay your taxes for you. So it's it's tax-free money. So you're making good money tax-free. Well, then you get your first – like, I only got paid three times a year. So my first year in Italy was really bizarre. I got paid when I got there. Then I got another segment in December and another one in February or something like that. So I get paid, and I get a check, and I'm like, what the hell is this? I go, this isn't what we agreed to. He goes, oh, no, no, don't worry. Come tomorrow to the office. So the way my salary was structured, they only wanted to pay so much tax on it. So my paycheck only showed that I made so much, but the rest of it got paid in a brown envelope full of American dollar bills. So I was like, oh, my God, what do I do with the rest of this money? So now I'm walking around with like, I think it was the first one was like I was walking around with 15,000 U.S. in my pocket going, 15 or 20,000 U.S. in my pocket going, this is stupid. Why am I walking around with it? I was like trying to be inconspicuous. I got this big brown envelope in my pocket. I was like, okay, but yeah, that's, that's the way there's always ways around it in Europe. They entice you over there with certain things. And that year in Italy was one of the years that was, uh, it was, it was probably one of the years that I was like, I'm glad I got out of there because I was one of the only the, like we had a bunch of Canadian guys there, like, all guys uh, we played with, like I played with uh, with a guy by the name of Carmen Vanni. Uh, Bob Mano was my coach in Italy. And, you know, but you play over there to Trevor Gallant, who was with us in uh, Kitchener my last year. And you go over there and you realize, okay, I'm the only one that speaks Italian on this whole team out of this roster of Canadian guys. And sure enough, it was like, Every time the GM wanted to talk to someone, I was the translator. And I'm like, this is getting old. Like, you're not performing. And I got to tell the guy he's not performing. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to him. I said, 
it was, it was one of those stupid things. I was just kind of caught in the middle there. Another guy who actually was the head coach of the uh, U.S. One of the coaches of the World U, U.S. World Junior Team was a guy by the name of Corey Leyland, was one of my teammates over there as well. So you know, there's a lot of good hockey players over in Europe, but there's a lot of guys that you know at the time, like Corey Leyland was a five foot nine defenseman. Those were unheard of back then. If you weren't six two, six three, and now it's changed so much. That's how the game's changed so much. Before you had to be six two, six three to be a player in the league. Now you could be five six, but you have to be six five to be a goalie in the league. So that's how the NHL has changed from back then. And uh, a lot of there's a lot of small defensemen that were really, really good hockey players that ended up going over to Europe and playing over in Europe and making uh, a heck of a career over there. Another Kitchener guy that we know, uh, Brad Schlegel, was one of those guys you know, was considered a smaller defenseman at the time, but, you know, went over to Austria and over to Germany and over there and made a great career for himself and did really well over there. Wasn't there an arena you played in while over in Europe, Torch, that was open air on one end? There was almost all of them were open air that year. (laughs) Our, Our arena had no walls. We had a roof, but we had no walls. So the arena I played at in Asiago, they'd, they were all excited because they had just put up a roof a few years before. So everything else, but it, it, I'm glad they were open air or else you wouldn't be able to see frigging from the smoke, from all the flares that the fans are lighting in the stands. Like there's road flares going off in the stand. It was like a soccer game inside the hockey ring. You know, you might as well have been smoking on the ice because frigging everyone around you was smoking right in, right in your face. So it was just like, it was crazy over there, but yeah, no, we got, uh, we had snowed out and, uh, we were playing in, and I'm trying to remember, I got to get my town straight. Um, we we're playing, I can't remember the name of the town now, in northern Italy. So it was almost in Switzerland, uh, but open air stadium, and it's there's a blizzard outside. And the one end of the rink is open, and the other, rink, other end of the rink is closed but the wind was blowing in from the open end of the rink and it was snowing. Like there was snow about, there was probably three or four inches of snow by the 10 minute mark of the first period up to the blue line. That's how hard it was snowing inside the rink. Like it was absolutely crazy. The referees would go shovel it out, but it was like, this is ridiculous. So they ended up calling the game partway through the second, but uh, you know, I was in that in the second period and all I could feel was snowing on my back and just wanting to get out of there so bad <laughs> it was so cold but uh, those are kind of it was so cool over there like the experiences uh in some of those arenas like you go into places like uh, vienna like who would ever go to vienna to watch a hockey game we got to go travel over there and see part of the city and it was it was pretty cool okay time for one of farwell and i's favorites um, because I think we've had this conversation numerous times around the rink. But have you ever what when you look back at your life around hockey, what was the most interesting dinner you had? <laughs> I knew you were gonna go there eventually. <laughs> you know what? We we just played in LA and I didn't play. So going out for dinner after the game, and you know, some of the guys are going out, Russ Courtnell goes, We're going out for dinner, come on over. So we go up for dinner at this place and Sure enough, Wayne Gretzky sitting there with his wife and, you know, and you look at the table and I'm like, it's 
Johnny Cochran. Or like, no, that was uh, it was Robert Shapiro who was the one lawyer. They go, this is Johnny Cochran over there at the other table, and I'm like, the hell are we? And it's like Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell are over there, and it's like, go out for dinner. And it's like, okay, so got got into drinking a few and had a few beverages at the time. So we went over and we wanted to talk to Robert Shapiro. So this is the height of the O.J. Simpson trial. So this is like, okay. So sure enough, we sat there and talked with uh, Robert Shapiro for probably an hour and a half and, and just trying to quiz him on this O.J. Simpson trial that's about to happen. And of course, he's not giving up any information, just a smile on his face and just kind of going about his day. But, you know, it was it was always so much fun just to be around those guys. And, um, yeah, that was one of those dinners that you, you didn't forget because I was like, what am I doing here? It's like, like, I have no business being here at this dinner table. I don't think there are many dinner stories or stories to begin with on a hockey podcast where you just completely breeze by Wayne Gretzky's name. Exactly. Like, yeah, Wayne's there. Yeah. Well, it wasn't – you know what? I grew up – like, I remember being in Chesswood Arena – when they filmed Mr. Big and Mr. Great, the Wayne Gretzky commercial where he was promoting Mr. Big and he was wearing this white outfit and I was going to Rick Vive hockey school when I was about 10 years old. And there's next door in the other arena, they're filming that Wayne Gretzky commercial. Well, I grew up with Brent and I'd known Brent for years. So I'd known the Gretzky family for years. And actually we talked about it. Mike Farwell and I did a, a Brantford, uh, a Brantford athlete of the year thing over in, in, uh, in Brantford. And I got to sit with Walter and Walter and I were talking about stories from when we were in Peewee and Brent and I were playing against each other in Peewee in, in tournaments. And he would remember stuff that was absolutely obscure, but it was absolutely hilarious. But those are the things like I, I've watched Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky was Wayne Gretzky at the time. There was no bigger athlete probably in the world at the time than Wayne Gretzky. Maybe Michael Jordan was coming up at the time and could could kind of put himself in that category. But Wayne Gretzky, like he put hockey on the map. Like there was no one in the states. Like if you, if you were in the states, like Wayne Gretzky, everyone knew who Wayne Gretzky was. They couldn't say that about too many hockey players at the time. But he was the one when that trade happened from Edmonton to L.A. He he put hockey on the map down there, and he changed he changed the game because without Wayne Gretzky, you don't have three teams in Southern California. There is absolutely no way you support three teams in Southern California. You know we got two. We had teams in Texas now because because of Gretzky. Bottom line, yeah. uh, so he was way bigger. He was one of those guys that, you know, he's way bigger than the game ever was, and he didn't want to be, and he just kind of wanted to be Wayne Gretzky. But he was he's way bigger than the game will ever be. That's my uh, Walter Gretzky picture, Torch. We were talking about that, yeah. of course, uh, at the time of Walter's passing. Everybody seems to have one. My Walter Gretzky picture is me, Walter, and you at that Brantford Athlete of the Year event. Yeah, um, and that was one of those ones. He was great, too. Like, he sat there, and he's giving me pens. He's giving me Walter Gretzky markers. He even gave me his prayer that he said at dinner out of his wallet, and I still have it in my wallet. I'm telling you, Mike, that's, that's the way he was. And that's way, yeah, he was that way. It was great. It is so great. Uh, before we let you go, Torch, because 
These stories are, are great. And, you know, I, I want to just quickly share my, my favorite memory of our time together, Torch, where I got to hear most of these stories for the first time. We were coming home from a playoff game in Windsor, and you and I had driven ourselves as opposed to being on the bus. And it just, it just kind of started. It was a Sunday afternoon. So anyway, we were coming back, though, down the 401, and we just were chatting like anybody, you know, the broadcast uh, team would in the car. And, and these stories just started coming out. It's not like I was priming you for anything. I'm not trying to draw stuff out. We just – I'll never forget that, that, uh, that trip, really, and the, the chat we had that day. It, it stuck in my memory forever. It really is. Well, you know what? That was the trip. We had to take that trip because we were like, I'm not staying in the hotel with these guys for four or five days. Because right. They took the bus and they were in the hotel for four days. And you and I are like, we're driving back. I'm not staying in the hotel. I'm like, I'm with you. So we drove back and forth. We drove back that day. And I remember that trip actually very well because you're right. And it's funny because when you start talking hockey stories, they all kind of flow something flows, something starts here and it flows into here and it goes to here and here. And these kind of all kind of blend into one another. But uh, yeah, I remember that because you and I were talking, I think we were two or three coffees deep by then. And uh, it was, uh, it was one of those ones. And, you know, I think we spent a lot of time talking, sitting on the bus together and in the hotel together about different stories, about different guys and uh, different things. But, you know, those are the things I, I love to talk about them because I got to experience them. And, you know, I'm not someone who's going to go out and flaunt it. Yeah. I played in the NHL. I did this. I don't, you know, to me, that was just a life experience that I got to live. That was uh, a part of my life that was unbelievable and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but, you know, for me, it was more about the people you meet and the, the people you meet along the way in this game and, you know, uh, how you and I met like, geez, we started doing TV together for Rogers TV. And I was just like, who am I doing TV with? Harwell? Okay, whatever. And, uh, you know, going through and our producer at the time, Chris was, Chris Schooley was awesome. And, uh, you know, he kind of walked me through it. Like I've never done TV or anything like this, but, you know, working with you and working with Chris was great. And that's, you know, that's part of the stories I like to talk about as well, because that's all tied into my hockey stories and my hockey life. And, uh, all the experiences I've gotten to have because of hockey and I'm grateful for it. And, you know, I get to, now I get to watch my boys play and uh, that brings me as much joy as anything. Okay. I'm going to come back to that real quick though, Chris Torch. Do you remember the playoff game when a fan brought a sign to the game and held it up to the booth that said, he's a nice guy. Yeah. We were doing uh, <laughs> Keller Williams and right. it, was, it was Keller Williams and we were doing something and it, it became like iconic. Like people would walk by me in the grocery store and go, he's a nice guy. And like we started it out as a joke because you were supposed to read the whole script. And then I just jumped in there one time and I did it and everyone thought it was hilarious. And it was like, it became like this stupid thing. Like people are bringing fans, signs at the game for <laughs> he's a nice guy. And I'm just like, Oh my God, this is crazy. And it started, it really did. It started out as a joke on the broadcast. Um, I just want to, that's great. And I'm going to use that moving forward as a throwback. Um, but Mike, <laughs> Mike talked about your guys ride that one day. I don't, I don't think I've ever told you or Mike this, but growing up me as a kid, obviously watching my two uncles play in the OHL um, for Owen Sound and Guelph, our family hated the Kitchener Rangers. 
They still do. My grandfather once told me, I hope they lose every game they ever play. I was doing the television broadcast for the team at this time. And you were a big part of that because you were so good. And I remember like I had hockey cards and I had drawn like devil horns on your helmet. Like Mike Dorky, was public enemy number one in my house. So when I first got around the Rangers organization and the broadcasting side, Getting going to the game and being like, Torquia is going to be there. I'm like, oh, I hate Torquia. I'm like, I bet you he's a dink, you know? Like, and then you meet him for the first time. You're like, I love Mike Torquia. <laughs> he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. A nice guy. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny because everyone has this perception of what people are like. Uh, we had the best rivalries. Like, with those, you mentioned Guelph and Owen Sound. Those were like some of my favorite games to play because we had such a rivalry with Guelph. Like, you know, I remember like almost getting into a fight with Todd Bertuzzi in front of my net. Just, he was a young kid at the time. They had Todd Bertuzzi and Jeff O'Neill when they moved back to Guelph after Hamilton moved back to Guelph. And then the old Guelph team that was in Guelph, you know, you should see when Mike Parsons and I see each other. It's like, I love Mike Parsons. Steve Parsons is the funny one. But Mike Parsons, he can tell you a story. He's, he's got some great stories. I imagine his podcast would have been great with him and Steve. Like those two together. Steve, I you know, sometimes I can't keep track of Steve. He goes all over the map. But Mike is just an absolute gem of a guy. And he was a guy I did battle with in the net almost on a nightly occasion for two years between games between Owen Sound and Kitchener. And, uh, you know, he was a Boston Bruin draft pick and well-deserved and what a great goalie, but uh, even better person. I, I love like, and th- that's the part of the bit that I love. Like you meet so many people like that and uh, fantastic guy. I know we've kept you long enough. I'm sure Mike wants to wrap it up. I know he's got things to do today, but I just want to end on one specific question. You talked about, you know, how everything you've dealt with has just been your story. And now you get to watch your kids go through it. Watching Nathan a couple of years ago, put on that Rangers uniform. What was that like for you? Uh, you know what? It was pretty surreal. Like, because uh, we got to the game and, uh, and I'm forever grateful for Mike McKenzie for even giving him the opportunity. You know, Nathan, uh, by all means, is a fantastic goalie, but he's not your typical goalie at this time. Like, he's not 6'4, he's not 6'5. He's a smaller, he's on the smaller end of the scale for goalies, but. You know, he's got that battle. He's got compete and he's got desire. But he is watching him put on that Ranger jersey and go out there for warm-up and take warm-up. And the first time, actually, I saw it was in the exhibition game. He played exhibition game against Barry, and uh, he was fantastic in the game. Uh, they ended up winning 5-4 in overtime, I think, but uh, had a great game. And, you know, both their goalies, Ingham was gone, and uh, he was just – Mike McKenzie just kind of called him, and King TC called him to give him a shot and an opportunity. And he goes – you know, he goes, if it was, he'd been, you know, he got traded from Oshawa to Owen Sound, and Owen Sound, he kind of got a bum deal, never really got an opportunity. Uh, didn't, you know, for some reason, him and Dale DeGray or didn't really see eye to eye in the way the game was played. But it wasn't like he had even talked to Dale DeGray. Dale DeGray just didn't like the way he played, so he didn't give him the opportunity. So he kind of been kicked around and everything else. And, you know, he had a great year. <coughs> He played for Greg Walters in uh, in Georgetown the year before and absolutely had a fantastic year and uh, absolutely loved Greg Walters. And when Greg Walters left, uh, you know, it was, it was great because there was that mutual respect between them. 
So he was like, you know, I'm kind of done with the OHL. He goes, I don't even care. I'm just going to go to Georgetown, play my games and enjoy myself. And then he goes, if anyone else would have called me, he goes, if Mississauga would have called me or Guelph or anyone else would have called me, he goes, I wouldn't have gone. But because the Kitchener Rangers called me, he goes, that's the only reason I went. And he, he goes, it was a great experience, something, you know, guys, you know, you know what it's like to be around the Rangers. He goes, first thing he had was a guy like Danny Liebold came in and st- took him in and brought him in and talked to him and everything else. And, you know, is there anything better than talking to Danny Liebold when, you know, you're coming into the room like, hey, this is Dan Liebold and been around forever and probably one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in, in this in this game. And, uh, you know, he goes, hey, Nate, how's it going? Like, because Nathan had been around. I was a goalie coach with the Rangers. I'd been around as a broadcaster. So, Nathan had been in and out of that dressing room with Steve, you know, Steve Spot was his coach in spring hockey one year with Troy, Troy well, sorry, Troy Smith was his coach because Steve Spot made him coach. And Steve Spot and Pete the, <laughs> and Steve Spot and Pete DeBoer were on the doors working the working the doors. And Troy Smith was the head coach. But you know, that's who he played spring hockey with. So he grew up with these guys and be around it. So to be around the Rangers and have that opportunity to do that, you know, you know there was nothing more my boys liked than coming Friday night and sitting in the booth while Farwell and I did a broadcast and just hanging out there. Andrew just came for the chocolate and, and uh, peanuts. But hey, so was, did you. That's true. Too. <laughs> Actually, I came for the coffee in the media lounge because Farwell used to make me fetch him coffee in between periods because that's all he drank, like 12 coffees a game. Really? Yeah, to see Nathan get that opportunity for the Rangers and put that jersey on, uh, it, it was pretty surreal and it was pretty special for him. I know that. What a small world, Torch. The story you told earlier of your former teammate, Tyler Ertle, when he was in North Bay. Sorry about this in advance. He spears you. Now his kid and your kid are playing down east for another former Kitchener Ranger, Billy McGugan. Yeah, you know what? Uh, <laughs> Ertz, Ertz and I, were, you know, we, we gotten to know each other beforehand, but we became pretty close uh, my last year, junior, when uh, he came back. He was at, uh, I think he was at UW going to school. And uh, we, were, we had an overage spot open. And Joe McDonnell convinced him to come back and play as our overager in uh, Kitchener that year. And he came back and we became really tight. So there's some other stories that probably aren't fit for this podcast that between Tyler and I. But, uh, you know, that we became tight then. And then to see our kids grow up, like we both lived here in Baden and um, Nathan played with uh, Tyler's oldest boy, Jacob, his very first year of novice here in, in, uh, in New Hamburg. And now to see Justin go and Justin's a heck of a hockey player down there. Uh, This is Tyler's middle boy. And and his youngest boy is now in Waterloo, who's supposed to play minor midget this year, but ended up practicing as a minor midget all year. So, um, but uh, to see that, so these boys have known each other. My my boys have known uh, Tyler's boys since they were all little babies and four years old. Uh, we spent New Year's with Tyler one year. And so it's not like it's uh, foreign to them. So they've known each other for years. But to actually play on the same team, it was, uh, it was pretty fun for, for me to watch. So Tyler and I, we watch it on uh, hockey TV. So we text each other during the game. You see that? Uh, yeah, that was bad. That was, so we're still dads, but we just have to do it over the phone now. <laughs> it's awesome stuff. Hey, 
get back to your life, but save some stories for the sequel. We're going to do this again, okay? Oh, Michael, anytime. I think there's a few I haven't told yet. So. <laughs> Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.